Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, David Griffith and Paul Bruno join us to discuss whether charter schools drain resources from traditional public schools. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber discusses how academic mobility differs across student groups. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. I love it. Listen to that. Two researchers talking about humility. Wow, this is great. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guests for this week, David Griffith and Paul Bruno. Welcome to the show. Which was supposed to respond first, Mike? Uh, well, you, I guess you went. David, welcome. Paul, welcome. Now, listeners are going to be confused because they say, what What do you mean a special guest, David Griffith? He's my co-host. Not this week, because we're doing a special uh, shameless self-promotion version of the podcast. And David's going to talk about something he wrote. But let's uh, welcome in especially Paul, Assistant Professor of Education Policy, Organization and Leadership in the College of Education at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. Paul, how's it going? It's going great. Thank you for having me. Longtime listener, first-time caller. Glad to be here. We are big fans of yours, Paul, and uh, have really enjoyed working with you over the years in a variety of things and uh, followed your work and excited to have you on. We're here to talk about a paper that David has recently published and that Paul was an advisor on and related to a topic that Paul's done a lot of work on. And the paper was, think again, do charter schools drain resources from traditional public schools? Question mark. (laughs) So we are going to talk about that on today's Ed Reform Update. All right. So, David, Paul, this is one of those like million dollar, I don't know, billion dollar, multi-billion dollar questions. A big one, an important one in education reform, because I think fair-minded people, I would, I would argue, would have to look at the evidence and say that urban charter schools have certainly done, on the whole, a whole lot of good for kids. Uh, But opponents of charter schools raise this big question, and it's a fair question, which is, well, okay, even if you concede that maybe the charter schools are good for the kids in them in general, what about the kids who don't go to charter schools? Are they harmed by charter schools? And in particular, are school systems harmed because uh, they end up losing resources? That is an argument that, that the opponents make. It's one that polls very well, that people respond to, people worry about. And in a country, we're still overwhelmingly, most of us, myself included, send our kids to traditional public schools. It's something that people want to know. So uh, is it fair to say, David, that when you ask this question, the answer is not a simple yes or a simple no? I think that's fair to say, Mike. And um, I think one of actually one of the main points of the piece is to break the question apart a little bit and try to get at some some actual questions, right? Because drain resources sort of a a talking point version of the debate, right? But you know, when you drill down, it's not entirely clear what the claim is, right? The claim could be that, you know, charters are reducing revenues per student, right? The claim could be that they are reducing instructional spending per student. The claim could be that, you know, they are reducing instructional spending per student and that that is some, you know, having a negative impact on students. To me, the smartest version of the claim or the most credible version of the claim, the most meaningful version of the claim is that, you know, charters are making districts actually less efficient, right? That they're creating sort of operational challenges for districts. And so, you know, even if those other things maybe aren't necessarily true or debatably true, that they 
you know, that they're making districts less efficient and sort of complicating things at a systemic level. It's hard for me to address all those questions in, in the time that we have. That's why we, we did the piece. But I think, you know, if that, I would say one thing, it's that there's really no iron law of, I'll call them fiscal spillovers. Actually, when you drill down, there are a lot of policies that potentially, not potentially, actually do benefit districts, right? They are, they are meant to shield them from declining enrollment, or in some cases, specifically from enrollment losses that are attributable to charters. In some cases, the money that is theoretically supposed to go out to charters doesn't necessarily do that. But at the same time, there are countervailing forces. So, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it is a complicated issue. It's not black or white. But I think the tone of the piece sort of argues that um, this claim that they they sort of do permanent damage to districts is is probably overstated. And what that at the as you say at the end of the day, districts on the whole seem to adjust uh, to the loss of students uh, and their state dollars, and that in some by some measures they become more efficient. It depends on your reading of the research, but I would say you know in the long run they will adjust to to pretty much anything, right? They will adjust. So the question is sort of how hard is it for them to adjust? Whose fault is that? Over what time frame? Um, is anyone really harmed? I feel like I should let Paul get in here because I'm otherwise I'm just going to give my spiel. But yeah, my personal view is that there is very little evidence that actual students are being harmed on average. Um, when I When I read the literature on the academic spillovers, I would say it is quite clearly neutral to positive. And any benefits are actually, I think, pretty small. But at the end of the day, I just don't think there's any evidence that that students are being harmed. And so to me, that suggests that any costs that may exist really boil down to sort of these operational inefficiencies that are something that districts ought to be able to address over a reasonable time period. All right, Paul, is that is that fair? You've studied this issue for a long time. How do you think about it? You know, roughly speaking, that that's right. I think, um, you know, David's right to point out a lot of the issues here relate to precision and sort of what we even mean when we talk about the financial effects of, of charter schools and traditional public schools. It's something I've tried to drought in other pieces in the past. I think there's some value to having something a little more accessible uh, than some of my uh, writing on the subject. But I think overall, that's probably a, a fair summary. Uh, I do think these issues are important in part precisely because I think the overall effects of charter schools on like the kids who enroll in them on average, I think that's you know neutral to positive is probably a, a fair read there. But because they're not large, I think it is worth, it's definitely worth keeping in mind some of the overall impacts on the entire educational system. Precisely because it's not like charter schools. It's not like charter schools have been a really, you know, massive silver bullet on the whole. Uh, we're pretty clearly talking about some relatively modest um, impacts overall. So I think both the costs and the benefits can can make a big difference. Would you say that, Paul? Even if you're just limited to urban charter schools, because I guess my sense was that you you know there the evidence is pretty strong, including some months of of learning benefits per year that could multiply over multiple years. I mean, pretty big deal, right? Yeah, I think, no, you can definitely find cases where it seems like either individual charter schools or different parts of the country, different cities have seen very different effects. But I think the flip side of that is, I think, looking at the picture as a whole, you see a ton of variation. And as a researcher, in a lot of ways, the variation is is what's interesting. But on the whole, I think that means a lot of those impacts sort of average out. And of course, the policy question here is, what is the ideal policy to have? I mean, there's a lot of us in charter school land who are frustrated that charter schools are not actually funded you know, a hundred cents on the dollar, right? That the kids transfer to charter school and not all the money goes with them uh, because then the charter schools don't have enough money to, for example, pay competitive salaries. And that's a real issue. On the other hand, because of that, because not all the money comes with the kids, it means that the impact on the traditional public schools is lessened, right? We're softening the blow to some degree because 
uh, much of the local tax revenue uh, stays put. And so in some cases, they actually have more money to educate fewer kids. If you went for the ideal sort of, okay, let's make sure that every penny follows kids to the school that they actually enroll in, in some ways that feels like that's a more ideal policy. But then you have to admit that that kind of policy maybe would then be having more of a negative fiscal impact on the district. Something that I think makes this difficult to talk about, and I think that the research suggests this, and I think David captures um, some of that in the, the piece, is that uh, to a large extent, what we're talking about here is a, a policy choice as much ed, as it is a question for empirical research. So a lot of when we're thinking about the financial effects of charter schools on school districts is just a question of what policymakers decide they want to do in terms of how much money a charter school gets and how much of that money comes out of the budget of a traditional public school district. And I think something that makes it hard is I think my experience is that oftentimes both proponents of uh, and, and opponents of charter schools are a little reluctant to have some of those explicit discussions that I, I think you're alluding to about exactly what kinds of costs they want the, the state to take on, what kinds of revenue they want charter schools to get and where they want it to come from. Because fundamentally, I, I think they also are, are, are interested in either expanding or constraining the, the sector. But I think a lot of what we're talking about is sort of exactly what I think you're alluding to, which is that ultimately we're a lot of this is just policymakers making choices about who should get how much money. Yeah. And Mike, I'll just add uh, to a greater extent than I think is true in some other literatures. I think it is actually a little bit difficult for researchers to avoid making similar choices when they're studying the issue because you have to make choices. Right. And Paul, feel free to jump in here, but you have to make choices about what to control for. Right. So you, you can control for, for example, the type of student who stays in, in a traditional public school, right? Uh, changes in, in demographics, or you can control for, you know, the size of the district, right? But when you do that, you're actually subtly changing the research question, right? And you're sort of injecting, I don't, I don't want to say injecting, but whether you do it or not, you're making some sort of normative choice, right? Mm -hmm. um, about whether to answer a question like, does the district get more money per student in an absolute sense? Or does it get more money for a district of its size? Or does it get more money for a district of its size uh, with a population of students that looks a certain way, right? And when you control for it, all those things, you're sort of, you're making this implicit judgment that policymakers are getting it right, sort of in the current state of the world. And I don't know, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. It's problematic not to control for those things. But it it's actually, the, the, the literature itself is kind of laced with these normative judgments that are actually very difficult to avoid making. And that is a big one. I mean, I have certainly heard opponents say, even of this paper, well, you know, whatever, you know, I don't believe you because we all know that a lot of kids with disabilities, for example, stay behind at the traditional public schools and that they are very expensive to educate. And so, you know, how can you possibly control for that and adjust for that? Now, I think what I'm hearing you say, David, is that, you know, some scholars have tried to do that, to try to adjust for that and control for that, but it's a difficult issue. And Again, there's a lot of variety. There's a lot of variety within kids with disabilities and what those expenses look like. There's variety from place to place. There's certainly some sectors where there are a lot of charter schools serving lots of those kids, but in other places, not as much. So that that gets into all of these kinds of questions. The last thing I'll say, and then maybe Paul can have the final word, is, is this is also a moving object, right? So charters have a higher market share now than they did five years ago, marginally, and an even higher share than they did 10 years ago in any given market. And so, you know, you can answer this question for 
2022 uh, as fairly as you as you want to. But the, the answer probably is going to be different by 2030 um, because districts will adjust. It simply isn't the case that this that whatever answer you come up with is going to remain true in perpetuity, even if they're costs, they're sort of transition costs that don't capture the long term state of affairs. Well, and Paul, this is all happening, of course, within a bigger world where there are demographic shifts, where we've got a whole bunch of districts, especially urban districts, but others as well, losing enrollment for reasons that have nothing to do with charter schools, right? We've had a baby bust. We have less immigration. We have people still moving to the Sun Belt and all this other stuff. People are moving to the suburbs again. So is it different? Like, do we have to think about the uh, the fiscal impact of charter schools differently than we do of the fiscal impact on just any enrollment changes? To some extent, that's a normative question. I think one reason to think about it differently is it's the kind of thing that uh, charter schools are the kind of thing that policymakers might have more control over um, uh, than they have over other kinds of things. But I think you're exactly right to highlight some of the um, context-specific issues here. And I think that really just gets to the limitations of how much the research on the overall average effects of charter schools on traditional public schools, including the financial effects, what that can actually tell you about what the right policy is going to be in a, in a given context. Uh, and a lot of this is about sort of value judgments about what kinds of options you want uh, students to have in, in, in their schooling, how much tax dollars you're prepared to raise and how you want to distribute them. Um, whether your goal is to reduce overall you know, spending or introduce more choice into the system. Those all might point in different directions. And like you said, different districts are in different contexts. And I think, I think, for example, there is some evidence that the financial impacts of charter schools might be a more serious concern in a situation where a school district already has some pre-existing financial stresses to worry about or declining enrollments, things like that. It might be a very different picture than a district that, say, got growing enrollments and is maybe worried about needing to invest in a bunch of new capital expenditures to expand their capacity. I think it's sort of more important for individual policymakers to be explicit about what their goals are and what trade-offs they're thinking about. The research can in, can inform those decisions, but it's it's never going to answer them for in individual school districts or, or states. I love it. Listen to that. Two researchers talking about humility. Wow, this is great. We will have to leave it there. Thank you, guys. Great conversation. Again, our own David Griffith, as well as Paul Bruno, who is Assistant Professor of Education Policy at the University of Illinois. Paul, thanks so much for joining us. Hope you come back sometime soon. Thanks for having me. Anytime. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Uh, for listeners who are wondering where Mike went at the uh, risk of breaking the fourth wall, uh, he had to step out for a bit. Not that we ever tape this over multiple days, but we do sometimes tape this show over multiple days. But we do. Amber is here. And Amber, it's wonderful to see you. I feel like we just saw each other at AEFP this past we weekend. We did in Denver. For the uninitiated, that's the uh, edu American Education <laughs> Finance Policy Conference, right, David? Nope. <laughs> Nope. Association. Association for <laughs> Education, Finance, and Policy. That's right. I know. It was just Oof. at the tip of my tongue, too. Hey, it was fun, though. I always enjoy I these know. things. Wow. We had a lot of good sessions. I'm happy to report. We did. And, uh, you know, there's nothing like listening to Harvard economics PhDs discuss <laughs> econometrics at the speed of light right. to remind me why I went into podcasting. Right? I, I think you and I were in the same session one time and 
I looked at you afterwards and you looked at me and we were both like shaking our heads like, did you follow all that? I did my best, but I, I think I missed about, you know, 70% of it. Yeah. And then someone in the audience always asks some question that makes me realize they actually did follow it. And then I just feel <laughs> bad about myself. Anyway. Anyway, it was good. Speaking of nerds, I'm sure that we have something <laughs> wonderful for us, um, that you have something wonderful for us this week, Amber. So what you got? I do. I have a Calder working paper from 13 different scholars, many of whom were at our Denver conference, uh, including Tim Sass, Corey Codell, David Figlio, Dan Goldhaber, Eric Hanishek, Steve Rifkin. Oh, and I could go on. Um they are examining academic mobility in U.S. public schools. Wow. By that, they mean the extent to which students' ranks in the distribution of academic performance changes during their public schooling career. This is a this is a of Mike interest study too. I'm sure we'll we'll have to tell him to, to check it out later. They use data from seven states: Georgia, Massachusetts, Michigan, Missouri, Oregon, Texas, and Washington comprising nearly, uh, wait for it, 3 million students. Wow. They follow multiple cohorts of all students in the sample states between 2005-06 and 2008-09 with standardized test scores in math and ELA in the third grade. Obviously, that's where testing begins. And they track them through high school. And in high school, they identify the exam with the highest coverage rate administered in a common grade which tends to be ELA in 10th or 11th grade. They are looking at four outcomes, eighth grade test performance, high school test performance, on time high school graduation, and high school graduation within one year of being on time. Their focus is on upward mobility among initially low achieving students. They define absolute upward mobility as academic mobility measured at the 25th percentile of the distribution of initial performance ranks. Okay, methodology. They follow the framework developed by Raj Chetty. <laughs> Do we and, have to? Okay. And colleagues to study inter intergenerational economic mobility. That mostly means, I'm like, uh, what's that mostly mean? It mostly means that their test-based mobility metrics are constructed based on percentile rankings and the test distribution at different points in the schooling career. Okay. Because they're looking at linear relationships, they're able to summarize academic mobility from their linear aggression models. Their results are not causal, something important to keep in mind, mostly descriptive. Uh, suffice to say, there are many pages talking about how they deal with measurement error. But results. Number one, students' ranks in the distribution of academic performance are highly persistent during K-12 education. We've heard this before. Yeah, so it follows that absolute upward mobility is low. Across our, the seven states on average, a student who starts at the 25th percentile of the academic performance distribution in the third grade can be expected to perform at roughly... What percentile by high school do you think, David? Hmm. Well, if we're not making a lot of progress, I, do they just stay at the 25th uh, percentile? Nah, they're at the 30th. Huh. Uh, that's on average, again, across uh, across all the seven states. Meaning what? They're, they're regressing to the mean somehow? Well, no, they, they spent a lot of time talking about that, too. Um, okay. And so they don't think that's what's going on either. 
Um, obviously, it's variable across the seven states. So that average is masking, you know, quite a bit of, of variation. Okay. Um, number two, conditional on beginning with a low performance rank, students from more advantaged backgrounds generally have greater mobility than their peers from less advantaged backgrounds. Okay. Number three, despite finding that academic mobility is low on average in U.S. public schools, they also see statistically significant variance in upper mobility across districts. They find that most of the difference in this absolute mobility is driven by district dif differences in baseline mobility. So at the very beginning, um, they find that absolute upward mobility is largest in districts serving students from more socioeconomically advantaged backgrounds. They measure that in a bunch of different ways. So mobility is higher in districts where local area incomes are higher, educational levels are higher, residential stability is higher, and where more Asian and white American families live. But outside of those attributes, they do look at district value added to student achievement, which we know controls for the student characteristics. And that is a consistently strong predictor of high upward mobility. Uh, number five, because this is the last one, uh, because high school graduation tends to be an indiscriminate outcome, not very discerning, the student's early career performance rank is a weaker predictor uh, of, of their likelihood of graduating than some of the other outcomes uh, that they observed. Uh, and finally, uh, they kind of try to wrap up. Basically, they say, that, you know, repeat that academic mobility as a whole is limited, at least as, as they've defined it as being predicted by that third grade um, trajectory. Uh, and they say, you know, this is this is not new. It underscores existing research on persistence and widening of achievement gaps during K-12. Uh, but one thing they do say is that uh, baseline mobility, since it's the key driver of these differences across districts, that it suggests that low performing students may experience bigger gains when attending districts where, gen where, school where students in general excel, as opposed huh. to, you know, where you try to target improvement of a group at a specific grade level. So that's what I've got. Huh. Okay. Fascinating. Um, I think that last part is the part that I, I had the clearest, I got the clearest take from. So is, is the takeaway that mobility, if you want to promote mobility, should you be promoting it within a district or are you supposed to be, I mean, is the idea that if a district is, is promoting everyone's mobility, then everyone is benefiting. Does that make sense? That is what we're saying. The set, the second one. Right. Right. I mean, and because again, but, but you've also got the finding about, you know, the high, the, the value added, right. Of, of the district is also, you know, as, um, you know, also showing really positive results outside of all those demographic things I told you about, which should give us some hope, right? That we can still control for student characteristics, um, and it can still be, you know, if you're if you're high value added, you also are more likely to, um, you know, predict, uh, be able to predict high upward mobility. Okay, and and I'm still trying to wrap my head around exactly what we mean by mobility, to be honest. And so, is there any hope? I mean, do they did they have any takeaways for <laughs> uh, how like how we we might pursue this? I think that what they're saying that you know if if you if you just concentrate, we think about this with with charter networks. We talk about big you know networks. How you just if you can 
just maintain excellence in general across the board, right? Have high expectations just for everyone, right? It's just, it's not, it's it's sort of the rising tide lifts all boats kind of, you know, a theory that you've found in some of your work with charter schools where, you know, if you can just sort of have that for, for everyone, that it's going to be good, uh, be, be good for, for the kids who are, you know, struggling. All right. I, I will certainly co-sign on that. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm not sure that that deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as the study, but uh, that's that's be that as it may. No, I mean, I think it's it's it's, you know, it's it's kind of depressing. You know, I'll give you that relative to, you know, that these kids aren't moving uh, from the lower ranks, aren't moving as much as we'd like them to be moving. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think you I mean, I'm, I'm going to loop this somehow back to AFP. I think you were telling me of a study, right, where the kids if they were tested in the earlier grades. They tended to do better uh, in the in the third grade. So, you know, this study is picking them up in the third grade. Right. When they you know, when most states have that that testing in place required. Yeah, it is interesting. Right. I mean, we we spend so much time obsessing about. K-12, and yet we sort of know that and an awful lot of the K is just baked by third grade, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and I sound like a pre-K advocate here, which I only sort of am. Uh, <laughs> um, but but it is it, it does just make you wonder if we should be focusing more on the earlier grades. Um, and yeah, like you say, we um, we don't really do that as a matter of practice. <laughs> right. Uh, so perhaps perhaps we should. That's all not particularly uh helpful or <laughs> or uplifting but um i mean it is it's not like districts don't matter right i mean the 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 takeaway isn't that education doesn't matter here right, right. there is that's significant right. variation between districts that's right exactly okay well there you yeah, have it very see, much so see our work is meaningful listeners in case you <laughs> yes, were wondering it is okay i was getting worried there first <laughs> all right well well thank you very much and um you know that's fascinating Well, that's all the time we have for today. Uh, Until next week. I'm Amber Northern. And I'm David Griffith with the Thomas B. Fordham Institute signing off. The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.